talking today about the fur trade. Spanish explorers in South America found gold to fill their nation's treasure ships. Explorers in North America did not discover gold, but three European nations discovered a different kind of treasure. They called it soft gold. It enriched their respective countries for almost 300 years. French, English, and Dutch explorers found substantial profit through the fur trade. Before I talk about the fur trade in North America, however, I want to spend a few minutes talking about the history of the use of fur, and particularly beaver fur. In every place around the globe inhabited by humans, furs had been prized for their warmth, luxurious texture, and the longevity as a material. Since the time of cave dwellers, furs have been used for the production of blankets, rugs, coats and capes, garments, shoes and shoe lining, a variety of head coverings, ornamental trim, and other embellishments. Three primary materials can be derived from the fur-bearing animal. The full pelt, that is, fur and skin, leather or suede, the skin with all fur removed, and felts, removing the fur from the pelt and processing that fur with heat and pressure to form a piece of pliable material. Russia, Northern Scandinavia, and Central Asia were the major suppliers for European and Asian fur markets up through the 15th century. The furs came from a variety of animals, including marten, reindeer, bear, otter, sable, ermine, black and white fox, and beaver. In the early modern era, that is 1500 through 1800, the most extensive and long-lived demand for furs came from the hat industry. Hats may be considered an accessory today, but for centuries they were a mandatory part of everyday dress for both men and women. Of course, styles changed, and in response to the vagaries of fashion and politics, hats took on various forms and shapes. What remained as a constant, however, was the material from which hats were made, wool felt. The wool came from various animals. Now, you may have thought wool always came from sheep, but not so. Towards the end of the 15th century, beaver wool began to prevail. Over time, beaver hats became increasingly popular, eventually dominating the market. Only in the mid to late 19th century did silk replace beaver in high fashion men's hats. Hats and headdresses served as symbols of social status and position. As at other times in human history, in the early modern period, hats were used to designate military status, social rank, 
and position, various professions, religious deference, and political affiliation. Hats played such an integral part of court dress that rigid rules of protocol in court society determined the proper time and style for wearing or not wearing a head covering. For example, in 17th century England, full dress included a hat and was required in the presence of the king. In Russia, however, although a hat was proper attire, the removal of one's hat in front of the czar was appropriate etiquette and demonstrated respect. By 1606, varying levels of hats and dress protocol had become so complex that James I of England had to appoint a master of ceremonies to instruct all visiting ambassadors on courtly protocol. At the end of the 1500s, a change in European fashion created a rage for beaver hats. The tall and narrow-brimmed hats of the Elizabethan period lost favor as high fashion, and lower, wide-brimmed hats became the trend. Then, the high-crowned, broad-brimmed hat of the first two Stuart kings of England flourished. Puritans, of course, had their own style, the plain, conically-shaped hat. The restoration of Charles II of England in 1660 and the Glorious Revolution in 1689 brought their own changes in style. But for all of them, beaver felt provided the best material and therefore an urgency to hunt, trap, and prepare beaver felt swept over European and Asian suppliers. As a brief aside, let me recount just a bit about the process of felting beaver wool. Hatters used a chemical formula consisting of salts of mercury diluted in nitric acid which they brushed on the pelts. The use of mercury had serious health consequences for hatters and felters who were forced to breathe the mercury vapor for extended periods. The expression, mad as a hatter, dates from this period, for the vapor attacked the nervous system of these workers and led to mental diseases. Back to the beaver, there was a substantial population of the European beaver throughout Northern Europe and Siberia until they became severely depleted in the late 1600s due to overhunting. The hat makers of Europe soon learned that the North American beaver under fur could form good felt. Beaver from North America, therefore, became the main staple of the fur trade. Aside from England, the countries to which these furs were exported included Russia, Prussia, Germany, Holland, Belgium, France, Italy, 
Turkey, and China. Since beaver would be the mainstay of the fur trade, let's look at what the beaver offered. Their fur has two layers. The outer layer consists of coarse, long, glossy guard hairs, which vary in color from yellowish-brown to reddish-brown to black. Their underfur consists of dense, short, fine hairs that are grayish to brown. This inner layer of fine hair, together with a substance called castorium, provide the waterproof barrier which keeps the beaver skin dry underwater. Castorium is a strong-smelling, oily substance that is an attractant to many other animals. It is secreted by castor glands near the base of the tail. The beaver will comb its fur with its front feet and with two split nails on its hind feet, it spreads the oil over its whole body. Beavers also have a thick layer of fat beneath their skin, which provides insulation from freezing water during winter. During the winter, beavers are less active and primarily maintain body temperature by staying in their well-insulated lodge. The prime season for maximum value of beaver fur is midwinter, when temperatures are at their lowest. The lower the temperature, the thicker the fur. A fur is said to be prime when the guard hairs are at their maximum length, the underfur is at its maximum thickness. The depletion, depletion of European beaver populations coincided with the establishment of European colonies in North America. England, France, and the Netherlands had all established North, North American colonies by the early to mid 1600s, and all of them traded in fur. Although beaver populations could be found all over North America, beaver in the northern parts of the continent contained the fuller, more luxurious coats that were more desirable in the fur trade. Therefore, intense European competition for American furs occurred in Canada and the northern part of what is today the United States. We can follow the path of the fur trade in America from pre-Columbian time through the 1800s. Indigenous Americans had been trapping, using, and trading fur between their different societies long before any Europeans had entered North America. The earliest instances of trade between Indians and Europeans occurred on the banks of Newfoundland. European fishermen, particularly the English, have been netting cod in those areas ever since John Cabot had sailed from England to North America in 1497. For much of the early modern period, France held a near monopoly on the beaver trade with England lagging far behind. 
Initially, French and English explorers in the 16th century and their governmental counterparts thought little of the common beaver skins exchanged by the natives they encountered on their voyages. They were intent instead on the promise of the spice trade with China and the attempt to find gold. But by the beginning of the 1600s, North Atlantic cod fishermen had developed a regular and profitable side trade with eastern seaboard natives. As word of this lucrative endeavor spread, French leaders and settlers moved in to lay claim to the state and quickly established a comprehensive network centered on the wide-ranging St. Lars waterway. The fur trade, which centered on the beaver in the first few centuries, became the mechanism by which Europeans advanced into and settled northern parts of the continent. Most overviews of the American fur trade fail to discuss the role of the third player in the fur trade, that of the Native Americans. They were, however, critical in the trade process, not only trapping the animals and preparing the pelts, but also bringing the product to the Europeans for trade. They also usually served as guides for European traders in the unceasing quest for more pelts. The exchange of furs for goods was a familiar and well-established practice and may have explained to Native Americans not only why Europeans had come to North America, but what they had hoped to gain from the voyage. That Indians willingly participated in the trade and helped bring about a radical decrease in the beaver population and its ecology demonstrates the lure and the legacy of the beaver trade as well. They, like Europeans, bartered the beaver and in so doing, joined in developing a new economy that linked both sides of the Atlantic. In the early 1500s, French explorers in eastern Canada made fur trading a big business. They traded tools, knives, hatchets, wool blankets, and beads to the Ottawa and Huron Indians for furs. The Indians brought fox, marten, mink, and otter furs, as well as beaver. In 1608, Samuel D. Champlain established a trading post on the site of present-day Quebec. That site became a fur trading center. The French traders roamed along the St. Lawrence River and around the Great Lakes. For almost 100 years, they controlled the fur trade in Canada and along the Mississippi River. By the 1620s, English colonists developed a fur trade in New England. Later, they formed an alliance with the Iroquois Indians and extended their trading area from Maine to Georgia. The Dutch joined this lucrative enterprise 
after founding New Netherland, not as a colony, but as a means of exploiting the soft gold. By 1624, the Dutch were receiving furs from many Indian tribes and establishing a series of trading posts, towns, and forts up and down the Hudson River. The French, Dutch, and English all found ways of working with Native Americans to expand their access to beaver sources. Both the superior ecological familiarity and well-developed hunting and trapping skill sets of native hunters were essential to providing a steady supply of beaver from the area. Within each colony itself, trade functioned as both an economic exchange and a means of establishing alliances between Europeans and their Native American neighbors. European business companies handled the large number of furs being shipped from North America. The most famous of these companies was chartered in 1670 by the British Crown, the Hudson Bay Company. It began operating from posts along the coast of Hudson Bay. For almost 100 years, this northern region experienced bitter rivalry between the French and the English. The Dutch had lost out when England defeated them in the Second Anglo-Dutch War in 1667, thereby gaining all Dutch territory in North America. Then, after the French and Indian War ended in 1763, France lost all their land in North America, leaving the fur trade exclusively to the British. Then, when the colonies revolted against British rule and created the United States in 1783, the fur trade in North America belonged exclusively to the Americans. The Lewis and Clark expedition to the Pacific Ocean in 1805-06 opened the West to fur trading. Several companies competed seriously for this Western trade. They included firms headed by John Jacob Astor, William H. Ashley, and Manuel Lisa. Manuel Lisa was the first private trader to lead an organized party up the Missouri River. He founded the Missouri Fur Company in 1807. William Clark, George Drewlyard, John Potts, and Peter Weiser, all men who had traveled with Lewis and Clark, accompanied Lisa from St. Louis for the Upper Missouri. That group traveled in two keelboats. On the way, they encountered John Coulter, another member of the Lewis and Clark journey, who promptly abandoned his own plans of meeting up with two hunters in the Rocky Mountains to join Lisa and his party. Lisa established Fort Raymond at the mouth of the Bighorn River on the Yellowstone River in present-day Montana in 1807, 
and built a second post above the Mandan and Hidatsa villages in 1809. One of Lisa's most famous trading posts was Fort Manuel, Lisa, built in North Dakota, almost on the South Dakota border. To St. Charbonneau and his wife, Sacagawea, were residents of that fort. In fact, it was there that Sacagawea died. I mentioned the keelboats in which Lisa's group traveled up the Missouri. This type of craft was used by most fur traders and were especially designed for travel on the Missouri River. They were ungainly vessels, some 50 to 60 feet long and 18 feet wide. They had a pointed prow and stern and a low cabin amidships. They carried a mast, but were usually manhandled upriver by means of long poles or a long rope that the men used to drag it bodily upstream in the shallows near one bank or the other. These boats carried trade goods upriver and cargoes of furs downstream. John Jacob Astor, a German immigrant, was the first American citizen to establish a monopoly on furs coming out of the newly acquired Louisiana Territory. In 1808, he formed the American Fur Company and concentrated on the northern part of the Louisiana Territory along the Missouri, Green, and Wind River systems. Astor practiced ruthless business tactics buying up smaller fur trade companies, and creating a monopoly. In fact, he became the head of one of the first multinational corporations with agents in Europe, China, Canada, and the United States. The most important American fur company posts were Fort Pierre in South Dakota, Fort Clark above modern Bismarck, North Dakota, and Fort Union, near the North Dakota and Montana boundary. William H. Ashley and Andrew Henry established the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. In 1823, they assembled a large party to ascend the Missouri to a point near its source, but the expedition was attacked by the Rickeras and forced back downriver. Ashley decided to abandon the traditional river routes, and send his trappers overland instead. His men, his men headed west on horses, revolutionizing the fur trade and opening whole new regions of the American West. Unlike all earlier fur companies, Ashley did not depend on Indian trappers and fur trading posts. He instituted what was called the rendezvous system for the exchange of pelts and to resupply fur trappers. In the spring of 1825, Ashley carried goods to a prearranged site in the Rockies and there exchanged the supplies for the furs obtained by the daring and resourceful mountain men who thereafter assembled annually to meet with him. 
Attending these rendezvous were not only Ashley's supply wagons and the trappers, but Indians and any other people who had knowledge and interest in the area or the business also attended. The meetings would last for two or three weeks with much revelry. The men sat around their campfires, swapping stories. They gambled, drank, and challenged each other in wrestling, horse racing, and shooting contests. These trade fairs became the stuff of legend because of the colorful individuals involved and their antics during the rendezvous. Men that included such notables as Jedediah Smith, John Coulter, and Jim Bridger. These companies hired hundreds of trappers to work the areas along the Missouri and into the Rocky Mountains. This was a profession that required a unique kind of individual. For the most part, it was a solitary undertaking requiring toughness, courage, and perseverance. The area they traversed was unsettled by white men and remained under the control of indigenous groups, some extremely hostile, but others who were indispensable to the survival and success of white trappers. These men often adopted the Indian modes of dress, travel, and food preparation. Some created lifelong relationships with the Indians, some taking Indian women as wives and producing children who, unfortunately, they often left behind when the men quit the fur trade. Since beaver pelts were in such high demand, I want to include here some information on hunting and preparing the fur. Beavers were hunted in a special way. Here is a description written by Alexander Henry, leader of the Northwest Fur Company, in his 1809 journal. Quote, To kill beaver, we used to go several miles up the rivers, before the approach of night, and after dusk came on, suffer the canoe to drift gently down the current without noise. The beaver, in this part of the evening, come abroad to procure food or materials for repairing their habitations, and as they are not alarmed by the canoe, they often pass it within gunshot. The most common way of taking the beaver is that of breaking up its house, which is done with trenching tools during the winter, when the ice is strong enough to allow of approaching them, and when also the fur is in its most valuable state. Breaking up the house, however, is only a preparatory step. During the operation, the family make their escape to one or more of their washes, these are, be dis these are to be discovered by striking the ice along the bank, and where the holes are, a hollow sound is returned. I was taught occasionally to distinguish a full wash from an empty one, 
by the motion of the water above its entrance, occasioned by the breathing of the animals concealed in it. From the washes, they must be taken out with the hands, and in doing this, the hunter sometimes receives severe wounds from their teeth, unquote. Beavers were sometimes caught with the help of bait called castorium. This is liquid, which was secreted in the sex gland of the beaver and placed on traps by hunters to attract male beavers. Castorium also became a valuable European ingredient for making perfume. In the early days, when Indians traded beaver furs to the white man, there were two types of beaver pelts, castor gross and castor sec. The term castor gross designate, designates pelts taken by the Indians when prime, trimmed into rectangular shape, five to eight of them sewn together, and worn with the fur next to the body for 12 to 18 months. The constant friction of the fur reversed against the skin gradually loosened the outer guard hairs and sweat added a glossy sheen. As such, the skin became well greased, pliable, and yellow in color. Castor gross was the most valuable because the long hair had already fallen and the felt had been enriched and thickened through contact with human skin. Another name for it was coat beaver, an indication of how it acquired its value. Castor sec, on the other hand, designated the beaver pelt that has been stretched flat, dried, and brought over immediately by the Indians. Castor sec, or parchment beaver, still had the guard hair and lacked the thickness and quality of castor gross. By the second half of the 17th century, North American beaver pelts flooded the European market because American colonies were obligated under mercantilism to send all furs to England, pelts were generally exported from colonial America to England, where some pelts were kept for domestic market and some were exported to other parts of Europe. After winning their independence, the United States exported furs to countries around the world. But by 1860, the beaver hat was out of fashion. Silk hats reigned supreme and the United States fur trade slowly collapsed. Thank you for listening. If you have comments, I would love for you to let me know. For previous podcasts, look for History Bites on iTunes or Spotify. I invite you to view the lessons on American history I've been taping for my YouTube channel as well. It's also called History Bites. Watch for the next podcast, which will be on the exciting lives of the mountain men who made the fur trade so lucrative. Tune in and join me in learning a bit more from history.
It's a quote from Marcus Garvey. A people without the knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. <laughs>